going to read it together as a church family. Let's do that now as Pastor Gene leads us. Chapter 17, verses 1 through 13 say, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will remove, restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Thank you, Pastor Gene. You're going to want to keep your Bibles open there to Matthew 17. We'll be back to that in just a minute. And if you happen to be wondering why... I'm limping up on stage today, it's because when you're relatively middle-aged teaching pastor, on Saturday plays ultimate frisbee with guys half his age, that means you limp to the pulpit on Sunday is what that means. So we'll press on through it, building up the body of Christ, that's what it's all about. So Matthew 17 question that's going to kind of hang over this whole thing this morning is, is, is something like this. How do we know for certain that our king is going to return one day? So that's really what Jesus is answering here in Matthew 17 for his disciples because he's going to give them a glimpse, a preview of what it's going to be like when he returns in future glory. I'll just tell you, Matthew 17 is one of those ultra high water marks in your New Testament. But before we get to verse 1, and we'll get down through about verse 9 or 10 this morning, something like that, I do want to back up just a little bit and give you the context to help you understand why the Apostle Matthew puts this story here. Now, let me just remind you, over and over again we've said that the main theme and the main idea of the Gospel of Matthew is this. 
to declare without question that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the king without question. For 16 chapters now, Matthew is again, he's given us his kingly ancestry, his kingly birth. He has a kingly forerunner in John the Baptist, his kingly authority over nature and sickness and demons and even death. And then you get to Matthew 16 around verse 15 and it's as if Jesus gives his disciples a pop quiz. He says, okay, guys, who do you say that I am? After all, I've been with you for almost two and a half, almost three years now. Who do you say that I am? And we looked at this last week. Pastor Daniel led us through it. Peter, of all the guys, pipes up and says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Home run, Peter, you nailed it. He is the Messiah. And on that, Jesus takes and he builds Peter on this testimony, I will build my church. Who Jesus Christ is, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But then I want you to understand, following that incredible declaration of who Jesus is, Jesus drops a bombshell. In fact, he drops two bombshells at the end of 16 that help us set up chapter 17. Here's bombshell number one. They get it. The disciples say the power of the Spirit of God has revealed to them he's the Messiah. But then Jesus drops a bombshell in 1621. He says, or, or Matthew says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. Stop right there. They didn't get that. In fact, he goes on and he says, your Messiah must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day rise again. Now, I'll be honest, if you're there in that situation, these are all guys. You know, if you give guys three or four things to remember, they might get one or two. I don't think they ever got to the he will rise again. All they heard was he's going to suffer and he's going to die. And I think that's about all they heard. And in the minds of these disciples, and here's what I want you to hear this morning. In the minds of these disciples, they have a real difficult, hard time with a Messiah who's going to suffer. They have no understanding, they have no place in their understanding that their Messiah must suffer first. Before a crown, there's a cross. They didn't understand that. In God's redemptive economy, suffering always precedes glory. You get that? Suffering precedes glory. In fact, Peter Speaking for the entire group, we looked at this last week, he in fact pulls Jesus aside and Peter, an incredible moment of rebuking Jesus in verse 22, he says, Jesus, this is never going to happen to you. How in the world could the Messiah suffer, die, be killed, and that we have no place for that in our understanding, Jesus? And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, and in other words, the notion that we can bypass suffering to glory first is a satanic notion that's not from heaven. Because in the redemptive plan of God, suffering precedes glory. By the way, Satan always tried to get Jesus to be derailed from the cross and go straight to glory. Remember Matthew 4, the temptations said, throw yourself off the temple, they'll worship you and you won't have to go to the cross. 
make these stones bread, and they'll realize you're the king, and you won't have to go to the cross. This bypass suffering and go straight to glory. That's not the message from heaven. And these disciples can't quite get their minds around that their Messiah must suffer. Now, hold on. Jesus drops the second bombshell. Then he goes on and he says in verse 24, Then Jesus told the disciples, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Here's bombshell number two. Not only will your Messiah suffer, if you're going to follow me, you're going to suffer. Suffering will precede glory. Suffering will precede glory. In other words, Jesus is challenging their thinking here. We struggle with this. They struggle with that. That the path of genuine discipleship will be characterized by a death to self, a taking up our cross, just like our, our Savior. In this world, until Jesus returns again, suffering is going to precede glory. You get that? That's the message he's trying to teach them here. He's preparing his disciples. He's equipping his disciples for what is going to come their way. Now, if we could just own the elephant in a room, I'm not going to run with this for a long time. Daniel hit it last week quickly is this. In America, Western Christianity, we struggle with a healthy theology of suffering and enduring well, don't we? We struggle with that. We, we struggle with our, and I'm talking to me. I struggle with my self-centered individualism. My therapeutic culture celebrates if it gets hard, we bail out. When, listen now, biblically, there are clearly situations and seasons when faithful obedience to, the God, to God's word will mean we are to endure and we are to suffer well. That's what it means for us as Christians. We struggle with that. Largest church in America, pastor wrote a book sometime back. In that book he says, and I quote, God wants you to have your best life now. We joke about that, you know who I'm talking about. That's not what scripture teaches. Suffering, enduring if we're going to be faithful to the word of God, will mean faithful suffering and faithful enduring. Philippians 1.29, Paul says, It's been granted for you, or it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe, but that you should also suffer for his sake. Now listen, following Jesus may not mean that you and I are locked up in a jail cell for our faith like the Apostle Paul. By the way, that is happening around the world in the country of Nigeria. At least 2,000 believers have lost their lives in 2021 simply for being followers of Jesus. I don't know that that's quite ready to happen in America. We may be close, but here's what will happen. Expect, expect situations and seasons when faithfulness to the word of God to you will mean enduring and the call will be suffer well. Suffer well. Jesus is trying to teach his disciples then that reality, and he's trying to teach us that reality. Because the marriages might be tough and might not turn out the way you expected them to. 
and the world says your best life now. If you need to, just bail out. No fault. Scripture may call you. No, suffer well. Endure for the glory of God. You may be called to a hard place of ministry that doesn't turn out quite like you expected. I'm a pastor. I'm talking to pastors. The typical longevity of a pastor in a place is only three years. <laughs> you say, well, that's probably just because of tough old mean people. It may be. Or it may be because we struggle with an idea of suffering well and enduring for the glory of God. Jesus is calling his disciples here and us in this life. Suffering will precede glory Suffer well, brothers and sisters. Faithfulness to the word of God may call us to suffer well. We know the culture. We know what's happening in our culture. That is becoming more and more true. Jesus teaches that here. Now, but what does that have to do with the transfiguration? Because it's in this context of a call to suffer well now that Jesus to his disciples says... And in that, I'm going to give you a glimpse of the glory to come. So that by giving you a glimpse and a preview of the glory to come, you can suffer well now. That's the whole point of Matthew putting the transfiguration here. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus to his disciples who were going to be faced with suffering says, I am going to return in all the glory of the king, and I will bring a king's reward with me. Here's your big idea or your big truth that will carry us through this morning, and then we'll give some big ideas at the end, is this. Jesus will return in the glory of his Father. Hallelujah, come Lord Jesus. But for us now, suffering will precede glory. Give us a glimpse of that glory to come, Jesus, so that we can suffer well now. If you're there and you're in that conversation with the disciples, maybe you're scratching your head and you're thinking, okay, I, I, I've heard that, I believe you're coming again. Lord, how can we be sure? Verse 28, Jesus says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man, that's Jesus, coming in his kingdom. The word kingdom there can be translated regal splendor. Until they see him in all of his glory. Translation, I'm going to give a few of you boys a glimpse. I'm going to give you a preview of coming attractions, right? When your favorite movie is coming out, what do you do? You want to run and see that preview that gives you just a little glimpse of what is to come. You don't see all of it. You don't see the whole story, but you see enough to give you confidence of what's coming. That's what's about to happen in Matthew chapter 17. Jesus is going to give his disciples then and us a glimpse of future glory so that... We suffer well now. Amen? And Pastor Mike, that's a long introduction. Well, I want you to understand the context of Matthew chapter 17. So find your place there. We're going to walk through just a few verses of this transfiguration that Jesus gives his disciples then and now a glimpse. Verse 1. And. 
The ESV translation uses the word and. It's very important. I know it's a new chapter, but sometimes when you're reading in your Bible, it, don't, don't worry about the chapter headings. This is a continuation of thought. And, the Bible says, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and he led them. They didn't stumble up there. They didn't happen to end up. Jesus leads them up there to a high mountain by themselves. Stop right there. What's going on? Well, why these three? Well, Jesus takes Peter, he takes James, he takes John, his inner circle, his closest disciples. There's also an Old Testament principle at play here that something is confirmed on the testimony of how many witnesses? Two or three witnesses. He says, boys, I'm going to take the three of you up here. I'm going to give you a picture of my glory so that you can then go tell about it and declare the greatness that is to come. This was not for the crowds. This was for his three. He's training his leaders. Why not the crowds? Well, remember, there's a history that when the crowds see Jesus in all of his glory, they want him to be king now. Remember that? When he fed the 5,000, they get so excited, they say, hey, let's make you king now. Jesus had to leave out of the midst. He said, no, no, you don't understand. Suffering's got to precede glory. Suffering's got to precede glory. So he takes these guys up on a high mountain. Now, why a high mountain? Why do they have to climb the 9,000-foot Mount Tabor? Anybody know? Here's why. Jesus loved hiking. Isn't that awesome? Yeah? So any of your parents ever said, hey, we're going on a hike, we're going to go tackle Bay's Mountain and on a hike, and your kids go, oh, a hike. Here's what you do. Jesus loved hiking. So you go hiking, you're just being like Jesus. Throw some Matthew 17 on. He takes them up on this hike, this 9,000 foot, and we don't know for sure if it was Mount Tabor, we think it was. It was upon this high mountain, verse 2, and the Bible says something incredible is about to happen. He, Jesus, was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. If you question or doubt in your mind in any way the identity of who Jesus Christ is, Matthew 17, 2 ought to put it to rest. He's no less than God in the flesh. The word transfigured means to transform, to change form. Now I want you to be real careful here that we don't mess up our theology. This does not mean or say that Jesus becomes something he was not before. He's always been God. The word transform means he undergoes a dramatic visible transformation revealing the glory that he had always had from eternity past and that will he will ever have in an eternity future. Don't read this to say, well, here's where Jesus becomes God. He's always been God. Clothed in human flesh, and he peels back the veil, if you will, and reveals to these guys all of his glory. This is God Almighty in human flesh dwelling among us, the God-man. Now again, remember, as you read the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew was primarily written to a Jewish audience. So these descriptors here in verse 2 are to 
call to mind, and I'm sure they did in Peter's mind and James' mind and John. They're, they're thinking back some things throughout Scripture. Because here's what I want you to know really quick. I'm, I'm chasing a little bit of a rabbit here. Throughout Scripture, when God chooses to reveal himself, often he reveals himself with glorious light. It's just one of the ways he chooses to make himself known. You go back to Exodus 33. Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. We won't take time to go back and read that, but you remember what happened. God said, I can't show you all my glory. You can't handle it, but I'll show you kind of my backside, if you will. And even the backside of his glory was in such light. What happened to Moses? He walks down the mountain like he'd been in a tanning bed for a week. His face is glowing with the light of the radiance of the glory of God, this unimaginable light. Exodus chapter 40, the light of the glory of God filled the temple there in Exodus 40. In 1 John 1, 5, John says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. Revelation 21, the end of history when we are in the new Jerusalem, the new creation. Listen to this verse, it's not on the screen, just listen. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb of God. Wow. And Jesus, to those disciples then and to his disciples today, he gives a little glimpse of the radiance of his glory, of that light, as a foretaste of what is to be. face shone like the sun his clothes became white as light and that wasn't enough verse 3 and behold there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him remember these are Jewish boys they've grown up their whole life hearing about Moses representing the law of God but Moses represents that law Elijah the greatest prophet that ever lived I mean these are heroes these are giants to these boys and they look around, and here's Jesus being transfigured. Moses is walking around with him. Elijah's walking around with him. What in the world is this all about? A few things going on here. Moses representing the law of God, the Old Testament. Elijah representing the prophets. In other words, here is a graphic depiction literally giving testimony that Jesus is the one who the entire law points to. Jesus is the one that every prophet spoke of. He is the one. All of redemptive history point to that. And here's Moses representing that. Here's Elijah representing that. And they're just walking around talking. And if you're a curious person like me, you've got to stop there and you go, what were they talking about? Right? What were they talking about? The hike they just made up the mountain? I, what are they... guess what you don't have to try to figure it out you let the bible interpret the bible you go to luke and you don't have to turn there luke chapter 9 gives his account and luke says and behold two men were talking with him moses and elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which was about he was about to accomplish at jerusalem that little word departure it speaks of his imminent death. If you translate that into the original language, it means exodus. Here's Jesus talking with Moses, who led God's people out of Egypt on the exodus to redeem God's people, speaking of his exodus that's about to happen in just a few days, of his cross. Think about this for a second. 
I don't know that Moses and Elijah, while they were alive, fully understood all the elements of God's redemptive plan. They knew a Messiah was coming. They didn't understand all the details of that. But it seems now in their redeemed state, their glorified state, if you will, walking with Jesus, they perfectly get it. And they're walking with Jesus and fully understand your redemptive plan is right on schedule. And suffering must precede glory. They got it. They're talking with Jesus about it, about the cross that's imminent, the cross that's coming. Peter's there, verse 4. And you know, if Peter's there, he's not going to let any moment pass without what? I got to say something. You ever know anybody like that? I got to say something. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is, it is good. We are here. If you wish, Lord, I'll I'll make three tents. See, Peter likes camping and hiking too. He said, I'll make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. What in the world is this all about? We give Peter a hard time. Sometimes we don't really understand what Peter's trying to say. Why does he say that? Well, one idea is that he wants to prolong the glory. I mean, this is one of the greatest moments in Peter's life. He didn't want to get away from it because he knows when this is over, i got to go back down the mountain to all the mess. Can we just stay here, Lord? That, that's kind of one of the ideas. Another idea is that actually, historically, this whole event is happening in the month of Tishri on the Jewish calendar. You say, that really helps me a lot. What does that mean? Well, in the month of Tishri in the Jewish calendar, the most important thing that happened was called the Feast of Booths. So as these guys are up here on the Mount of Transfiguration, you know what's going on down in Jerusalem and all over Israel? People are building tents everywhere to commemorate the exodus of God's redemption. So before you give Peter such a hard time, maybe Peter's trying to simply do what Scripture called him to do. Maybe he mistakenly equates equality with Moses and Elijah with Jesus, and that seems to be one of the things here that's going on. In the end, Luke chapter 9 clues it up again. When he talks about what Peter's saying here, he says, Luke, Peter really didn't even know what he was talking about. (laughs) He's just talking. He comes out, and here's what God the Father now is going to speak in verse 5 and clear it all up. He says, no, no, you don't put Moses and Elijah and Jesus on the same plane. They're not the same. Verse 5, while he was still speaking, Peter, how do you shut Peter up? God the Father is going to speak from heaven. while he was still speaking, verse 5, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And the voice from the cloud says, God the Father is about to speak. You think this event will rock the mind of a Jew and the heart of a Jew that's there? Jesus has been transfigured. Moses and Elijah show up. And now God the Father is going to speak from heaven. He says this. Translation, this one. Jesus is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, like no other. He alone fulfills the law. He alone is the fulfillment of all the prophets. He alone is the promised Messiah. You listen to him. In other words, don't try to put the prophets and Moses and the law and all that on the same basis, the same plane. This is the one. Speaking of Jesus. Verse 6, when his disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. Terrified. It's an appropriate response when hearing the voice of God Almighty. 
And in a beautiful picture of the gospel in verse 7, look what Jesus does. Here's these guys. God the Father has spoken, kind of like Isaiah chapter 6. They're undone. They're terrified. They realize their need before him. And verse 7 says, but Jesus. I love that. You want a condensed view of the gospel or a condensed view of the gospel? Right here it is. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. How can a holy God have fellowship with sinful man but Jesus? <laughs> but Jesus. There's a picture of the gospel. Verse 8, And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus alone. Now, I'm going to stop right there. i got just a few minutes. What in the world do we do with this? What do we draw from this incredible picture of this transfiguration that took place on the mountain? Peter and James and John, in light of the call to suffer and endure and lay down their lives, are now given this glimpse of the glory that is to follow so that they will suffer well now. And Jesus gives a glimpse, a preview again of what his return is going to be like. I mean, he, Jesus, we know from this, he will return in brilliant glory. There will not be anyone wondering or scratching their head when Jesus returns going, you think it's really him? You think it's really Christ? It's not going to be some obscure message somewhere thinking, well, we think Jesus may return. No, there'll be no doubt he will return in full glory. Gives us a preview. He will return to his people. He comes to, he reveals himself to his people, and at the same time, he will return with his redeemed people, Elijah and Moses with him. Those that have gone ahead of us in glory in Christ will return with him, and then he will dwell with his people face to face in all of his glory and in our redeemed, glorified state. And to that we say, come, Lord Jesus. You and I this morning, I think it's hugely important to understand the key for our enduring and suffering well in this fallen world is that we fix our eyes on the glory that is to come. There's something greater at the end. I'll just give you a quick illustration. Every summer I try to read a, a history book or some kind of nonfiction history book. I'm reading a book right now called Unbroken. It's about a U.S. fighter pilot that was downed in the Pacific Ocean and he, he was there, and in the ocean he was able to get into a life raft, and he floated out in the Pacific Ocean for 50 days. He survived shark attacks, they survived typhoons, they survived their floats sinking, all that stuff, and then finally a rescue plane comes to rescue them, and they're all thrilled and excited, and when the plane gets closer, they realize it's a Japanese plane. They're taken into POW camp for the next two and a half years and they endure suffering that you can't even imagine. And you say, why are you sharing all this? Because over and over the drumbeat of that book is he was able to make it because he was trusting and hoping and clinging to one day he was going to be able to go home. One day I'm going to be able to go home. Now listen, I'm not saying this life is like a POW camp. That's not what I'm saying. And he had no certainty that he was ever going to be able to go home. Listen, if you're here and you're a child of God, it is with more certainty than the air you are breathing right now that Jesus is coming one day in glory. Thus, that reality enables you to walk through current realities and walk in faithfulness to the Word of God, no matter what it may cost you. 
Peter gets this. Now, I don't know if he got it right then on the Battle of Transfiguration, but we know 30 years later, the Apostle Peter writes a letter. And again, Daniel mentioned it last week. We're going to study this book next year in detail. But for our application this morning, Peter, what did you learn from this? First Peter is written to exiles, and they're called aliens, believers who are scattered all over the Roman world at that time who were suffering for their faith. Faithfulness to the Word of God meant it cost them something, and Peter writes several things. I'm going to give you three big ideas, lessons from Peter coming out of this, and then we'll close and we'll be done. Here's big idea number one. Suffer well today in light of that day. Suffer well today in light of that day. Help us with that, Peter. 1 Peter 1, 13, from his letter, he says this, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Don't be surprised. Get ready. Keep sober in spirit. And in the midst of all that, where do you put your hope? Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says the sure and steadfast hope that will carry you through this call to suffer and endure well now is fixed on the sure reality. Hey, Jesus is coming again and all the grace that he will bring to you then. Incredible reality. In other words, I would just say this. As I was reading this this week, it became obvious to me and I was very convicted. Think about this for a minute. To the degree that you and I are longing for the return of Christ, evidence is where our true hope is. Dan Valley got that. Let me say that again. To the degree that as a believer in this fallen world, you are longing for the coming of Jesus is at least an evidence to where your true hope is. You say, where do you get that from? The Apostle Paul. When the Apostle Paul was in a jail cell in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he's at the end of his life. He says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And then he said, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord himself will award to me on that day. And Paul's not finished. Then he goes on and he says, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. To all who have set their hope and longed, Lord, come again, make it right. You give us good things in this life now, and we are thankful for that, but this is not home. And there will be times that the call is to endure and suffer well, but we long for your return. We know suffering must precede glory, and we long for the day that you are going to return and make it all right. First Peter 4. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with great exultation. Come, Lord Jesus. We suffer well today in light of that day. Second big idea quickly is this. 
we love fervently today in light of that day. And you may not make this connection, and I'm going to do this very quickly, but Peter in this letter comes to chapter 4, and he says this, verse 7, he says, The end of all things is near. Jesus is coming soon. I'll translate. It says, Be of sober judgment for the purpose of prayer. And then verse 8, he says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Keep fervent in your love. For one another. Let me just translate that. He, he goes on and talks about gifts, how we serve one another, how we build up the body of Christ. Here's what that means. In light of the second coming, in light of the imminent return of Christ, prioritize building up, loving, and serving well the body of Christ. God's people. In light of that day, Peter says, fervently love one another. We suffer well in light of that day. We love fervently in light of that day. And the last big idea, and we'll be done, is this. We speak boldly today <laughs> in light of that day. We speak with boldness. We speak with clarity. We speak with conviction. We speak with a certain hope that the world does not have today. Why? In light of that day. Where do you get that from? 1 Peter 3, verse 13. He says, who is there to harm you? Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. Do not fear their intimidation or do not be troubled. Verse 15, here it is. But sanctify, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense. For what? Everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope it is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Peter says, in this life today, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of enduring, in the midst of having something that the world doesn't understand, when you're asked, when they come, and they say, man, why is it that Jeremy Bledsoe has a hope that I don't understand? What is it about that guy? Well, he's just a super guy. Well, he is a super guy, but that's not it. He has a hope that is greater than anything the world has to offer. And the believer is to exude hope unlike anyone around you. I don't mean this glibness and this walk around, oh, everything's going to be all right. No, no, no. There is a sure and steadfast stability to your life that will not be shaken in light of the fact that Jesus is coming again. And the world says, what is that hope you have? And you are able to say, King Jesus who died, who rose again, is coming again. And he will make everything right. And he will make everything new. And you can know him as well. What is the hope within us that the world simply can't understand? Jesus to his disciples who he knew was going, were going to experience suffering. Jesus to these disciples, us today. He makes a promise that is sure and steadfast. The Son of Man will come. In the glory of his Father, with all his holy angels, King Jesus is going to return again. Before that glory, we are called to suffer well now by fixing our hope on his soon and sure return. And as God's people, the team comes on up and just begins to play. As God's people, you know how we respond to that? We respond to that just like the, the book of Revelation. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Would you bow your head with me this morning?
Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room. I pray for this body of believers called Tri-Cities Baptist Church, Lord, that we will. God, I just pray this morning that we're not just hearers of the word. But there's a transformation that you are bringing about in our perspectives and our minds. That we are being transformed this morning into the likeness of Christ. That we will learn to suffer well now, waiting for your return. Lord, help us to love fervently now in light of that day. And Holy Spirit, will you empower us to speak with great boldness and confidence and hope in light of your soon and imminent return. We say with the book of Revelation, come Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.